Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm talking once again to Dr. Colette Muir about ADHD and ADD. This is a two-part series, and this is part two. We're talking about management. So Colette is a developmental paediatrician who works at Starship here in Auckland in the Developmental Paediatric Service and also at the Cowrie Centre. She undertook her medical training in Auckland and then did her Developmental Paediatric Fellowship at the Mater Children's Hospital in Brisbane. Welcome, Colette. Hello, nice to be here. So you may remember Miss M. She returns today with her mother. A diagnosis of ADHD and attention has been made. So today we're going to discuss the management, both school management, the role of diets and micronutrients, stimulant medications and their monitoring, and when to return a child back to the paediatrician. Miss M's mum is quite apprehensive about medications and she's quite keen to try and discuss everything else first. So Colette, talking management, what is your approach to management of ADHD? Well, I very much respect that for most families, they are very apprehensive about the idea of medications and certainly do want to think about what option, other options they have first. And I think that is often the journey of ADHD. And I think our job as medical professionals is to be alongside that family while that journey is occurring. And just checking that we're checking in and that families aren't being lost um, to, to, um, to our thoughts as they are travelling along that journey. So I always think the management of ADHD first of all starts by trying to optimise and get the environment right for this child. Secondly, ensuring we have tailored and specific strategies that can help this child. And then thirdly, if needed, moving on to adding medications in on top. And I think that families like that framework of thinking and certainly it helps us if we can do it that way. We know that if you get the environment right and you treat with the right strategies, you're likely to need lower doses of medication uh, and, and hopefully with time, you're learning those strategies to manage instead of or with a lower dose of medication than you would if you didn't think of those other aspects first. So when I talk about this, first I'll often talk to families about getting the environment right. And I think um, the younger the children, the environment's actually up to parents and schools to get that right. The older, when you're starting to work with young people, it's them starting to have insight into how their brain works and how they work most optimally. Um, and they then have some control over that as well. So that's things that sound pretty straightforward, um, but nonetheless, often getting these things into day-to-day -day, um, practice is the hard bit. How that works in a classroom, particularly now we have often big classrooms with team teaching, how that child can have space to learn with less chance of distraction. And I don't think that always means sitting next to the teacher all the time and looking different to other kids, but hoping that that can be explored in a way that's supportive of that child. Um, and at home, you know, how does that actually work in the mornings in this household? Uh, is it better for the child to have an extra 20 minutes in the morning to be able to sit and eat their breakfast in a way that there's not a whole lot of stuff going on and then have uh, a more structured and quiet way of being able to gather their school bag together. Um, 
So getting the environment right and then thinking about what particular strategies would be useful for that child. So there's a lot of um, information out there on websites and books, and I'll certainly give you some of the links that I find really useful in my practice. Many of them reference children with ADHD, but many also reference the concept of executive functioning. So it's not just the ADHD, it's actually those bits of the way we think and do things that are needed to be able to do it at higher level function that often need to be supported more with children with ADHD. So um, is this a child that actually just saying the same thing over and over again is not that helpful? So actually, do we need to use some visual prompts? Do we need a visual timetable of the different steps that need to be done in the morning? Do we need to have this child getting more? Um, do we need a strategy that they will get everything organised um, the night before um, and put it on the launch pad next to the front door so that the morning goes smoothly so that this child is able to get organized in a sequential fashion at a time where there's not time pressure as there is the next morning. Uh, when they're doing their schoolwork, do they need to learn to chunk the task uh, you, so that um, instead of one whole overwhelming task, they can break that task down into smaller pieces that can be done piece at a time. So there's huge numbers of resources out there about teaching strategies that support children to be able to function better if they have ADHD or executive functioning difficulties. And I think that um, operationalizing that first is really important before we start adding medication in on top. So you talked a little bit about the home environment, Colette. Um, what about school? She's a school-aged child. She's eight years old. Do we need to get a SENCO involved or the Ministry of Education and the management of this child? Or is talking to the teacher enough? I think it depends very much on individual children and individual schools. Certainly ADHD is common enough that we will have, on average, one child in every class with ADHD. So it's entirely possible that when you go and talk to the teacher, you've got an experienced teacher who's really got a good repertoire of strategies that may be helpful, both for this child's ADHD management, but also for their associated learning difficulties. In saying that, most of the time, having that additional support from the SENCO, the Special Education Needs Coordinator in that school, may well be useful so that there's an overall understanding within that school that's going to follow that child through from class to class. The support from the Ministry of Education um, is at a threshold that some, but definitely not all children with ADHD, would step up to receiving the next level of support, either from a resource teacher of learning behaviour or the Ministry of Education. Those referrals are made from the school SENCO, so the school SENCO is the first point of contact for that. And I think the important thing here is to always, once again, think about that functional outcome. So if we're managing to get the functional outcomes we need through the school working within their own processes, that's absolutely fine. Um, if there are concerns that there's uh, still concerns for the child, then asking for involvement of the other services is probably very worthwhile. And Colette, what can that um, intervention or support look like for a child with ADD or ADHD? 
Well, I think it very much depends, and this is where it's very important to become very individualised, the age of the child and what what their particular skills or difficulties or areas of difficulty are. Um, I think the one of the best tools which uh, can is not always utilised is actually the concept of an individual education programme. And whether that's done formally or whether that's sort of just done by the appropriate people sitting and talking, I think that actually thinking, where is this particular child at the moment? What are their strengths? What are the areas of difficulty? What are the things we need to work on? What particular strategies could be helpful for that? And then reevaluating at the end of it is really helpful. Sometimes it'll be specific strategies we need to use, like I alluded to before, chunking particular tasks or organisational strategies of this is how this is going to work when your child arrives at school. How are we going to teach the concept of get these things out of your school bag and then go and sit there? Do I need a visual timetable? Do I need a checklist? Do I need a buddy? There's lots of different strategies that you could use. Uh, sometimes it's broader than that. It's actually focusing on things like, well, actually, sure, we're going to do those specific things about the ADHD and use these strategies, but actually, we really need to focus on some positive peer relationships or positive self-esteem. So we're really keen on getting this particular child involved as a librarian or buddying this younger child and playing softball with them at lunchtime. So it really needs to be very individualised what we're going to do to support this child. And the more we have meeting, planning and evaluating if those strategies have been useful, the better we're going to support that child going forward. Now, Colette, Mum asks us about the role of special diets and micronutrients. Mm-hmm. She wants, she's read lots on the internet and wants to try some various things. What would your advice be here? And is there any evidence base for these strategies? Look, I, there's, this comes up a lot working in the ADHD field. And my approach tends to be, I mean, the first thing, the work that's come out of... Um, Professor Rutledge's work around using micronutrients for ADHD. The first thing I'd like to say is how fantastic it is that someone's actually looking at this in a very evidence-based way. And I think the fact it's coming out of the university and being properly studied is really beneficial. Where that's up to at the moment, my reading of the literature is that um, we're really in very early days of really understanding well whether micronutrients are going to be a benefit in this area. I'm very aware of um, one randomised control placebo-based study um, published back in 2018 um, that really showed the benefits not specifically with the hyperactivity or impulsivity symptoms, but was um, looking at some of the um, uh, areas such as aggression and emotional regulation. Um, But I think it's very, very early days um, as to where that's going to land. Um, The other area where there was quite a lot of research um, about is actually fish oils in ADHD. And once again, some initially um, quite positive-looking studies and even some initially positive meta-analysis and then some further studies that really showed that maybe it wasn't as beneficial as as, as we'd hoped. I have to say, the way I tend to do it is I don't promote Personally, my personal practices, I don't promote them, but if families want to do them, I think that's fine. I ask them to put a time frame around it, and I actually ask them to put a time frame around it 
while they're working on getting the environment right and while they're getting the strategies right, and that we will check in at the end of that. And if there are still ongoing functional issues that we perhaps refer off for more conventional treatment at that time. That's just my approach. <laughs> so you've talked about micronutrients, but specific diets. So there's concerns that various preservatives cause hyperactivity or dairy or gluten. Any comments about these? Once again, there's very little evidence to support these. Um, and I tend to, uh, once again, be quite pragmatic because of the lack of evidence in this area. Um, just balancing up harm as well. Less preservatives is probably not going to be harmful for anyone. So that's probably okay. Uh, perhaps some more hesitations around children coming off dairy or gluten. Um, and if parents, many parents will choose to do this anyway, but I think ensuring there's good positive communication around it and it's being well monitored is very sensible. Um, I certainly don't directly recommend it, but I appreciate many families do that. Colette, what family support is available out there and how do we access it? Is there a role for like the family disability allowance, for example? I've certainly seen different opinions on this. Um, if we are to, it comes down to often functional level when we're ticking those boxes on the child disability allowance. I tend to find that many children with ADHD probably wouldn't reach the threshold for receiving a child disability allowance, but some do. I think it comes down to function and how much they're actually impairing at the moment. The type of case we've discussed that really is perhaps focused more just on inattention, but the child is otherwise pretty independent may struggle to get that over the line, I think. Um, but nonetheless, we do for some families. Otherwise, it's really about families um, linking in with various of the support groups that are out there and a lot of um, groups online that families tend to um, link with. Um, certainly, um, many families find that this condition is common enough that there's often people they know they can link in with. So moving on now to medications, Colette, uh, medications need to be initiated by a specialist. So if a child hasn't been referred, this is probably the time to refer. But GPs can provide repeats and monitor. So what advice do you have for us? How often should we see the child? What are we looking for when we're reviewing a child? And are there any physical examinations we should be doing on these repeat prescriptions? And look, I think ADHD is a very good example of a condition where we can work really well between secondary and primary care, and particularly because of our rules where children are actually needing to receive repeat prescriptions every month, so it actually gives an opportunity for ongoing, ongoing engagement. I think the things that we're usually wanting to know in primary care when writing repeat prescriptions would firstly be if there's any particularly problematic side effects at that time, any reasons not to carry on the medication, and then also wondering about efficacy. Is it working? Is it working as well as it should? So from a side effects perspective, we know that um, stimulant medications, and particularly um, the one we usually start with in New Zealand is methylphenidate, is that it invariably causes uh, appetite suppression. So it's very important when starting methylphenidate I find, to have a really good talk with families about that so they expect it. If families don't expect it, it becomes a reason to stop. But if families are expecting it and they're given the job of actually finding solutions to this child's eating, 
then that can actually work just fine. So we know that the appetite suppression happens while the medication is active in the system. For most children, that will mean if we start them on either an immediate release or a sustained release formulation, that they'll probably not want to eat their lunch at school very well. So often I'll be talking to families about the fact that we do expect the child to eat the same amount of food during the day as they would usually do, but it just might be at different times. So encouraging the families to get a really good uh, breakfast into the children and then to problem solve the rest of the day. So there's children who will eat their lunch out of their lunchbox on the way home. I'll often talk to them about making sure they have food in the lunchbox that if you're not feeling that hungry, you might like to eat anyway. You might be more likely to want to eat some cheese and crackers or a bliss ball than you would a big sandwich at lunchtime if you're not feeling that hungry. Whether whoever does the school pickup has a muesli bar uh, you know, with them to give the child to eat at that time, whether or not the child actually feels like having a big afternoon tea instead of saying, don't have big afternoon tea dinners soon, say, yes, have your big afternoon tea because you're catching up from during the day. So there's lots of different things families can do. And even some children for whom we go to the extent of putting on um, uh, uh, nutritional supplements on the odd occasion to maintain the weight. So I think it's really important to know how that's going. And the important thing from a side effect perspective there is really the weight measurements. So actually um, having primary care be measuring that weight and checking that that appetite suppression isn't causing weight loss is actually really important. I think it's different for every child, but I really appreciate it if I've just started a child on the medication, if for the first couple of months um, the child's GP is able to actually see them every every month for a couple of months to make sure they've had a weight and a peak blood pressure. Um, and how things are going. And then once things are stable, swinging that out, particularly with older children, to every three months, or even if they're really, really, really stable and older, every six months, you know, may well be okay. But I'd probably take that up gradually um, and sort of take the foot off checking the weight uh, as things progress and they're going fine. So that's one of the side effects I think it's really important to monitor for quite early on and on an ongoing, ongoing way. The other side effects are more um, uh, uh, often will settle down after the, the trial of medication, but nonetheless, if they're carrying on, I just need to know. We may need to look at changing the medication, and it may be that children feel headachey, maybe they have a bit of a sore tummy, or it may actually be these impacts on mood. So, emotional regulation difficulties, um, all of a sudden having behavioural outbursts in the afternoon when they get home from school, or um, or just really being more anxious or tearful than usual. Most of the time, if we start this medication low and slow and do it well, we don't have these side effects. But if we do, and those are ongoing, I think that's really important um, that we have a conversation about that and see see what we can do. And often, um, often I hear stories of people that have stopped medications because of a particular symptom. And often I think, well, not sure that needed to stop it. I just think it probably needed a, a reconsider of dose or timing. And so often many of these side effects we can certainly remediate just by tailoring or targeting the medication we're on. So I think that's the first thing. Are there side effects and do we need to do anything about do we need to do anything about that? Um, from a cardiac perspective, symptoms and, and, and side effects are very unusual, but monitoring blood pressure is really important and just useful to know if there's a problem. 
The other important thing, of course, for follow-up is actually the efficacy because there's only a point being on a medication if it's the right dose at the right time that's doing the right thing. Um, children do have a habit of growing, um, so sometimes um, the efficacy is actually just that they've grown and they're growing out of their dose and we can touch that dose up. Um, and sometimes it can be that things are changing in a whole lot of different ways. It's a new classroom, there's different pressures, and sometimes these things are related to the ADHD and sometimes they're not. So knowing about efficacy is really important. Um, and, and, and once again, coming back to that impact on the child and the impact on the family. As children go through school, at primary school, they may really just need the ADHD medications covering the school day. By the time they reach intermediate or secondary school, for them to be able to function, it may be that we need to look at doses that cover the afternoons or you know, even into the evening sometimes. So understanding about efficacy and understanding how that child is functioning are really good pieces of information to understand on follow-up. You mentioned blood pressure, Colette. What are the parameters for blood pressure and what do we need to worry about? I think that just within the typical range for that particular child if it um, for that for a child of that particular age and weight and if it's high i think we do need to know about that and we need to if it's consistently higher than that that needs some consideration of whether they should be on this medication or not great thank you colette talking about stimulant medications these are the mainstay in adhd and there are various formulations can you talk us through when you would choose each type and why you would choose one type over the next? Sure. So the two common stimulant medications are methylphenidate um, and dexamphetamine. Um, in New Zealand, we only have the short-acting uh, version of dexamphetamine, and so we, we don't have much flexibility with being able to provide longer longer acting um, medications. And so until one of those longer acting ones is available in New Zealand, I think uh, most people will continue to use methylphenidate as the, as, as the mainstay of treatment. So with methylphenidate, we have four different uh, versions available in New Zealand. We've got an immediate release medication, which it's very individual for different children, but as a rough guide that I tend to go by, that tends to often work pretty quickly within about 30 minutes and lasts roughly about four hours or so. So you usually tend to find it'll last for the morning section at school and, um, and then if we need any more, we'd potentially use need a lunchtime dose. I tend to use the immediate release in the younger children in my own practice, largely because then you can tailor doses uh, a, a bit more easily with, with smaller children. The next one is a very old one, but it's, it's utilised still a lot in New Zealand of sustained release. And so that's methylphenidate in a capsule form. It lasts a bit longer. It often lasts sort of roughly around six hours. So you can usually get the school day or so, maybe wearing off by the afternoon at school. Under the New Zealand rules from Pharmac, we need to either start with immediate release or the sustained release medications. So although some of the overseas guidelines, like the Canadian um, National Guidelines for ADHD, would have us starting with long-directing ones, we can't under New Zealand Pharmac rules. So immediate release or sustained release would be where we start. And actually, in truth, this often works quite well um, for most children, particularly those at primary school. The other two formulations we have in New Zealand are long-acting, which in my head I roughly think is around 8 to 10 hours, 
um, that's LA, and then concerta, which is longer again and often last for about 12 hours. We do have Pharmac rules that say that we can only use these either if there's a risk of diversion or if compliance um, with using the shorter acting versions, including the repeat dosing, is difficult. Um, so we are we are under restrictions with regards to that. Um, the longer acting ones, if children are eligible for them, I find are usually most useful as children get a bit older. So when you're actually wanting cover, definitely through the afternoon at school and probably into the afternoon when you get home, then um, LA um, or concerta can often be more useful and particularly concerta for our teenagers that are doing homework later in the evening. So, um, of course, the other option if you want longer coverage is to use the shorter acting ones, the IR or the SR, and give top-up doses as well. Of course, that can be tricky for people to remember and have available at the right time. And one of the big other considerations that we then have, of course, is when you're thinking about how long it lasts is actually around those side effects, particularly the appetite suppression and if you're using longer medications with regards to sleep. So if I'm moving to longer ones, I'm really wanting to know that there's some way we can still get the right amount of food in. Um, often in practice, I find this is less of an issue with teenage boys. By the time they reach teenage boys, the appetite suppression tends to not be the same. They can still eat a lot of wheat picks. And with regards to sleep, we do know that children with ADHD can have difficulties with sleep anyway, regardless of whether we're on stimulant medication or not. And there will be some children for whom the stimulant medication will make that sleep, that onset of sleep worse. So we really do have to think about those things and individualise the management to a particular child. Colette, drug holidays, weekend breaks, longer weekend breaks are all things that I've seen used over the years with children with ADHD and on stimulants. Is this something that we should be doing regularly for the children? And if so, what's the advantage? So I think, once again, it comes down to being very individualised. Um, and I'm very aware that many practitioners in this area will all have different standard things that they do. So you'll probably see a pattern with the particular prescribers you're working with. I think the most important thing is to be very individualised with children. My own personal practice is when I'm setting up the initial trial of medication, I actually ask families to take it in the weekends as well because I'm really keen for the parents to be able to feed back as well as the school, who see them on the school days. In the longer term, I think it really depends on why we're using the medication, what the functional impacts are, and what side effects that particular child is having. Um, for families for whom behaviour is a real issue and it's causing functional problems within the family, I'd actually like them to not have medication holidays. I'd like families to feel empowered that actually they can keep taking it in the weekend, and that's okay. Um, in saying that, if we have children for whom uh, the appetite is a real problem and a weight problem, then you really might want to consider those drug holidays. Um, if children's symptoms are really targeted at school, particularly the children for whom the inattentiveness is a real issue, then actually they may not need it in weekends. So I tend to go by the use the medication when you need it, but if you need a holiday, uh, if you have time where you can come off it, that's fine too. Uh, there are some people who 
do advocate for a bit of a, a reset, some time with it out of your system and then going back into your system. I don't tend to see that so much personally in my practice, but once again, I think you need to individualise it for certain children. You mentioned sleep earlier on. So obviously assessing that a child is getting enough sleep. At what point do you need to medicate a child? Look, I think I come back to the same idea that I do with everything. You need to get the environment right. You need to get right strategies in there. And if you're still stuck at the end of that, you might like to think about medication. So, um, and that's, I think we all know, easier said than done often. But I think um, we do know that children with ADHD uh, are predisposed to sleep difficulties. And then we add the stimulants in as well. Um, so I'm quite comfortable with children looking at prescribing melatonin and circadian being the, the funded version at the moment, but really in that greater context of ensuring that we do have good sleep routines, that getting children and um, young adults on board with the idea that actually some of us are really good sleeper, sleepers and some of us just aren't, but actually learning to sleep is a life skill and we need to learn this. And as long as I think we have that context and then melatonin might help as well, then that's reasonable to try that. I also think under the Pharmac rules whereby we have to reapply for that special authority once a year and we have to say that actually there's been a good trial of just using behavioural strategies is actually a really safe practice. These medications, the stimulants particularly, are often abused. Recently I read that we should be doing random urine drug testing on children. Is this something that you do in your practice? Look, it's not, but I think it's a consideration that we're becoming more and more aware of. I've moved to, in my practice, really being very upfront about this issue with teenagers. And whereas I feel that having ADHD should not be necessarily something that people should hide under a bushel and may well want to be very proud of, also balancing this with not wanting children and young people to be put under pressure by peers about diverting medications. So I have conversation with teenagers now just about not wanting to put them in a bad situation and being cautious about who they tell they are on this medication. I think that the idea of medication um, urine testing is definitely one we should be considering, but not one that I've come to a good conclusion with in my own practice at this point. Yes, we actually had that discussion in our practice and how you would do it. You know, do you spring it on someone without them knowing or do you need their consent? And we haven't come to a conclusion with that just yet. Yeah, yeah. interesting. <laughs> Colette, other medications, what other options are there if the family just doesn't want to go there with the stimulants? So I think that, you know, I'm very aware when it comes to medications for ADHD, this is really optional stuff. Uh, you know, it's not chemotherapy. So I find often good relationships and good ongoing thought is really what is often, often needed. I often talk to families about medications being an extra tool in the parenting toolkit. And actually some, some families need, uh, some children need parents to have a very small parenting tool, toolkit. And other children, even in the same family, can need a far bigger parenting toolkit. And I'd like to help them with their parenting toolkit with the books and the websites I have about different strategies they might like to use. I'd like to suggest they fill their toolkit 
perhaps with some formal courses like the Incredible Years Programme, and that I also see medications as another tool in that toolkit. If it comes down to the families just not liking the idea specifically of stimulant medication, there's a few things that I talk through with families. The first is that actually under Pharmac rules, so if they want something funded, their options really are stimulants for a start and then potentially moving on to second-line medications such as atomoxetine or Stratera as the currently used brand. I have heard, or we did have um, information from Pharmac that um, atomoxetine was coming off special authority, so we may um, be moving to a time of having more flexibility with atomoxetine um, prescribing. In saying that, if we look at international guidelines, they definitely all have us starting with stimulants, methylphenidate and or dexamphetamine, before we move on to atomoxetine. So I think that that is more high-end stuff that we could definitely talk about in tailored situations with families. I would expect that that would typically be happen, happening at a secondary care level. Ditto of people to use in other, looking at other medications such as clonidine or a medication that's used overseas, guanfacine, and is only available at parent expense here. So I think that discussions about other medications is probably a more high-end discussion and probably often the conversation I would be having in primary care would be about really bolstering all of those other things that families can do at that point in time, but keeping the door very open to medications at a later time. Uh, Colette, you've mentioned the incredible years. I've heard of this program before, but don't know specifics about it. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about this program, please. I think in what we know is that there are two very well-researched, evidence-based parenting programs available. There's a number of other parenting programs as well that actually pick up a number of similar threads. But we do know that the incredible years and the triple P have good bodies of evidence behind them. Uh, the Triple P um, program came out of the University of Queensland and is quite extensively used in Australia. Incredible Years is American and is actually the one that's been picked up by our Ministry of Education here. Um, there are some philosophical differences between the two programs, but I'm a real pragmatist and I think either are fine. Um, both do both the courses that do uh, are done over a number of sessions. Um, if you read the documents behind them, you know, a lot of the stuff is really stuff that we all know as parents, um, but a lot of the courses around how you actually get that into your day-to-day -day practice as a parent, um, and both have the concept around positive parenting type strategies and implementing it into your day-to-day -day life. Um, there are NGOs in local areas that will uh, offer both of those particular programs. Um, some come with some cost some don't um, and I think it's probably good to know in your local area who's offering the incredible years and all the triple P programs and to try and facilitate families into these as I referred to before often knowing that it actually is quite a big ask to do the number of sessions in a parenting program but if things are actually really difficult from a parenting and behaviour perspective um, that, that actually these are the things that do have evidence behind them. Great, perfect. So Colette, what children do you want to see back and what would be the red flags that would make us refer back earlier? 
I think it comes once again really down to function. So if what the child is on from a medication perspective and it's not seeming to do the thing we need it to do, I think it needs to be reconsidered. I'm really happy for some um, alteration of stimulant medications. I'm really grateful when that's done in primary care. In my head, I have a general guideline of around about up to one milligram per kilogram of methylphenidate and probably half of that, 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of dexamphetamine. And I'm really happy for some flexibility and altering of doses within that sort of envelope. If that's been done and so, you know, increasing a dose because a child's growing more, um, adding in a five milligram or a 10 milligram if it fits within that, that sort of dosing schedule within the afternoon. If those sort of tweaks can hold it and that child is functioning and doing well, then I, I don't think we need to see them again. The flip side of that is if it's really feeling like the medication isn't working, um, if the side effects are too great, or if we're seeing secondary impacts, and by that I mean, sure, we're struggling to treat the attention and concentration, and now this young person is starting to feel really depressed. So we've got some secondary impacts of it. Then I think we need to see them back to try and tease those things out more. I think also if it becomes clear that this is a more complex picture. So by this I mean it was thought to be straightforward ADHD, although us in the area often say, is there such a thing as straightforward ADHD? But if, if it was thought that this is a relatively straightforward case of ADHD, and then it becomes apparent that actually there's a whole lot of family violence here, or maybe we miss the fact that actually there's a whole lot of attachmenty stuff that needs to be thought at or trauma exposure for this child. So if there's a whole lot of other stuff that's making it not that we should know that at the beginning but if it becomes more apparent that it's actually a more complex picture that actually just the alteration altering of medications isn't going to be helpful for then I think that's another red flag we need to look at again. Colette if a GP or primary care practitioner is wanting to learn more about ADHD and stimulant medications are there any particular resources that you could direct us to? I think if any professionals are interested in learning more about ADHD and, and management, one book that I find particularly helpful is really just an overview both for families and also for practitioners is called The ADHD Go-To Guide, Facts and Strategies for Parents and Teachers by Professor Desiree Silva and Dr. Michelle Toner. I particularly like this book because it comes out of Australia, so it's probably more similar to our New Zealand practice than a lot of the um, other books that are out there. But it actually gives quite a well-rounded approach to ADHD, not only going through each of the specific medications, but also thinking about some of those environmental and behavioural strategies we can put in place. If people are wanting further guidance around particular medications uh, and medical management, I think the UK NICE guidelines around ADHD and also the Canadian National ADHD guidelines are both really useful documents that step through the medications and medical management uh, quite well. Our New Zealand ADHD guidelines are now quite out of date. They're around 20 years old. So I think I'd look to the UK and Canadian guidelines for further information. Thanks, Colette.
Just to conclude our podcast today, do you have some take-home messages for our listeners, please? So I think when it comes to medication management, the take-home is really that um, we need to start with environmental and behavioural strategies. But depending on how a child is going, we might need to do those things all together alongside with medication, or it may be that parents can focus their first on their journey as they work towards the thought of starting starting medication for their children. I think we know the stimulant medications are actually very effective in most children, and we can talk to families about the fact that we can start with just a trial to see how it works, to see if that's beneficial for their children. I think within primary care, I'm always very grateful for ongoing monitoring, particularly around weight and blood pressure, efficacy and side effects. And that I'm also grateful when in primary care, there can be some adjusting of medication doses. And I personally think within that sort of up to one milligram per kilogram seems to be a, a good guidance. And that when we sit in secondary care, we're really help, really pleased to be able to work alongside and help individualise and tailor medication doses to help children's function. Thanks, Colette. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim some CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You will also find the book that Colette referred to and guidelines on our website. Thanks for listening.